Welcome back to How AI Built This, um, the podcast dedicated to data storytelling, speaking to the most interesting people and companies in the world of AI. As always, we're sponsored by the wonderful people at Cathcart Associates, uh, technology recruitment experts. So a huge thank you to them. Today on the show, I am buzzing to speak to Phil Bates, uh, head of data at Street Group. They are a rapidly growing Manchester startup uh, who are looking to disrupt the way people buy and sell properties, which is quite a big claim. Uh, and data will be playing a key role on that so phil welcome to the show thanks thanks for having me you're very welcome if anyone's listened to the show before we always start in and around the kind of realms of education uh mainly to see what people did before they got into data my extensive guest research has kind of not come up trumps today uh, i can't work out if you did anything after school went straight into industry did something in between so enlighten us well i went to school that is a that was Good. a thing that's a legal requirement, I suppose. <laughs> I started doing A-levels, but I picked, definitely picked the wrong ones. started doing like, history and, and chemistry, which just wasn't a good fit. So after that, I came out of that, went to college, got into sound engineering, weirdly enough. Um, thought, yeah, music could be a great industry to go into. Did a couple of sessions where I was recording bands and stuff like that. I just realized that, God, it's hard work for no money, no reward. So thankfully, there was enough electronics and engineering in what I was doing to get onto a proper degree doing electrical electronic engineering. And then that literally opened the door to, I don't know, engineering industry in the UK that doesn't really exist. So I repaired stuff for a while and then got into IT and the rest is history, basically. What were you repairing? Um, you know, I don't if no, you know if you remember the satellite boxes that Pace used to make. Um, we yeah, were repairing yeah. them, so I'd get a box, a schematic, which was over many, many pages, and it would be like, it doesn't work. Figure out and fix it. And by the way, you've got to do ten a day, which is a lot. So I think I I averaged about eight, which was better than normal, but wasn't ten. So yeah, it was kind of that was the. That was the thing, and I got a bit bored of that, you know, because you open every, I don't know, every 20, 20th one up, and it's got cat wee in it, which is enough to oh. put you off because it's been stored for a couple of months to years, and, you know, it's quite gross. So so I, I think I at that point, I was like, right, where's, where are things going? What's the best thing to move over to and IT and all that computer science stuff that I did as part of engineering, but didn't really think I'd use was like, this seems like a better fit. So I got a job as a, I think it was a DBA to begin with. And I've never done that before. Um, I was a DBA of an access database. If anyone remembers access databases, they were shocking. Um, and that, that led me to Microsoft SQL. And the, that really did get me on the, on the uh, runway to IT. Nice. Yes, I was going to uh, where I kind of started this kind of career whistle stop, if you like, before we get to what you're doing now. Um, yeah, you started as a kind of like database, MI developer, DBA, working across, I don't know, like a decent few companies in the Northwest. But yeah, you said it started with Access and then did it only really kind of ramp up when you kind of worked on some SQL databases and then, I don't know, did it just snowball from there? It was, so access was tight, you know, it didn't really support what we were doing with it. So it broke a lot. So part of that job was trying to figure out what the next solution, the next evolution was going to be. And I didn't actually get to do it at that job because it eventually wound down the company. We we moved on to other things, but it was very much the next thing in my career. I jumped across and, and kind of picked a role that was working with Microsoft SQL, got certified eventually. And I got to a level where I was a real, quite a high level professional on that platform, but then collided with an agile coach who convinced me that it was completely the wrong way to go with my career. It was specializing. It was going to be, it was actually going to close doors rather than open doors. And um, on reflection, I think that made me open my mind to different things and, and started to listen to developers, you know, as a DBA, you were taught to, to close the gate on developers, not let them change anything. Change was bad. Um, this, this was definitely butting up against businesses that wanted to change everything every day, you know, so, and developers were driving that. So, you know, it did, it was quite a mindset shift at that point where I decided to move out of just being a DBA and move into something much more general. 
which kind of led me to architecture, yeah. really. Yeah, and we'll get onto that in a sec. But um, it just popped into my head now. So I read something on uh, LinkedIn. I think last week or before there was just there's a data scientist. I can't remember his name, but every so often he'll post like kind of just like hints or tips of getting into the industry. And one of the things he mentioned was like get a really solid understanding of SQL. Like that's gonna stand you in good stead for the rest of your life. Um, do you concur? Yeah, it's probably the best thing I ever learned, and I, I've learned it to a degree now where I probably struggle to teach it because. In, in fact, I was pairing with someone earlier and I was getting so frustrated that I couldn't communicate what I wanted to do because it was it was, it was was beyond muscle memory. It was like mind memory, writing these nested SQL statements that were complex but were easy to debug because I think that's where you get really good is when you can actually write SQL that you can figure, you can audit as you're going along so you don't make any of these massive sql faux pas which everybody makes um it's better to make them early on in your career than it is when someone commits a million dollar project to it or something and you've got a, <laughs> you've got a rounding error or something in there but i mean sql is it's not going away I, I i read a book probably about 10 years ago it was seven databases in seven weeks and it kind of it that was the spark that changed my whole approach and it was things like Hadoop was mentioned in there, Mongo was mentioned in there, um, Redis, you know, all the all the cool things back then that that were no SQL. And at that point, I was like, oh, I did, my SQL skills are gone now. It's all going to be domain-specific querying type stuff. And what's happened, they've all put SQL interfaces on these technologies so that people who know SQL can can interact with it. So, yeah, SQL is essential. Nice. I'm glad you agree. This is probably a question for later in the show, but we'll we'll jump around. Did, have you kind of on purpose stayed hands on? So you mentioned you were pairing earlier, like you're still able to kind of essentially just roll the sleeves up. And I know you've done that in your last two roles anyway, kind of being one of the first in the team. But was that always, even when you went into architecture, was that always in the back of your mind? Like, I want to still be able to do this stuff. Yeah, I think I got into architecture just as it was changing. So it was they were trying to remove the ivory tower i'm going to do a big design up front thing and chuck it at the dev teams to implement or change transform to or whatever i I was at the point where architecture was actually becoming really it was more like a principal developer role so you were encouraged to stay hands-on because you were going to parachute into a team and help them transform things so i went into architecture with that mindset so it was always hands-on it was it was probably it was more of a reflection of the industry where pay scales were restrictive to people staying in businesses and stuff like that. So as you got to a certain point within the pay structure of a business or an IT team, they just gave you a new title, which sounded really lofty, but didn't really mean much more apart from they could tell HR to process your, you know, your wage a little bit bigger. And I think that was a big issue to begin with. That was one of the appeals to get into architecture because it was just that natural progression within the business. And But it always felt like it was a principal dev role to me. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So there's two points to that. So one of the things I was doing some work with a client a while ago and trying to explain like the you kind of have to almost have like two career tracks, even in like a startup or a scale up. So like there's a bunch of devs who or data scientists who never want to manage anyone because they don't want to. And let's be honest, it could be quite shit. Like it's not the most fun job in the world managing people, even though that's the kind of like utopia of like what people seem to want to get to. So you need to have two tracks, like, but they get paid really well. Like you need to be able to get to like that absolute, for example, SQL expert in the company that knows every single thing about it and can mentor people, but they're not their line manager. And equally, you need to have that track of management so people can progress that way as well. So companies seem to get stuck. Like like you said, once you get to principal, senior, like whatever, like the only way up is head of team, like team manager, CTO, whatever. Like there doesn't seem to always be, it's not even a sideways step. It's just like a different step, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I think it reflects the situation that businesses are really bad at calculating what's valuable, including their people. You know, what does person A deliver value into the business as? You know, is it is it higher than normal? Is it lower than normal? You know, what what is normal? What is acceptable? You know, all these sorts of things don't really happen. And you know, it's not just people's 
kind of input it's also you know you can look at agile teams and tickets why are we doing this ticket what does what why is it valuable you know some of the fuzziest information is given or people just give up because they can't calculate the value so they just kind of they, they shoot from the hip on it so so this is where data-driven businesses come into play it's like you can't just use data to improve your customer experience you've really got to start using it to improve your entire business and that can creep into how happy your team is how well paid they are against the industry you know how how long is a meetings taking in your business you know it really has to become fabric and i think businesses especially where, where i've worked have wanted that and it's happened in isolation but it's never really fully come together because i guess it's a big it is a big thing it's a big change to to think completely like that because there's a baseline involved everyone has to understand the baseline of data you're going to use so that's a big investment but you know it's i think value is very with people it's really hard because it can become very one-dimensional which is really dangerous you know you're better off not trying to do it if you're going to end up with a biased kind of measurement system um but yeah He's been fighting that for years. There's a book by Laszlo Bock, isn't it? The ex-Google chap who was HR over there. And Google, they try and do all of this structured on, on what they think people bring to the company. And it can vary a lot. So, Yeah. No, I think it's, it's a good point. And um, I think part of what you mentioned there about it being in the fabric of the company, we've not had this discussion on the show for a while, but I still think it comes down to like, if you're interested in using data, then you should probably have a voice very high up, like ideally on the board, if there is a board of directors or founders or whatever you want to call it, but like someone who is regularly speaking to the founders rather than it being two rungs down via the chief marketing officer or whatever. Yeah, and I think kind of like the custodian or the steward for for this sort of thing because I think it's very easy for businesses to back the wrong data and the wrong insights and the wrong the wrong thing that has been discovered i think a lot of bias can creep into businesses where people aren't particularly you know aware of what their sample looks like with regards to what it should reflect and all that kind of stuff so it is it's one of those roles that i think is emerging but it doesn't seem to have emerged as quickly as some other roles you know like data science came and blew businesses away you know everybody wanted a data scientist way before they could actually use one and ultimately you know what i mean what does it look like at board level it this sort of stuff hasn't haven't really it hasn't affected cto cio type positions and, and moved in alongside those i think i've seen chief data scientist in a couple of businesses over in the states but is that the same thing you know is that just inferring what data or, or like influencing what data science is, is doing or is it actually affecting how the business assesses and, and uses its its information? I don't know. Also, if it's in the States as well, there's the whole job title thing over there is like the worst thing ever. So that could mean it could mean anything, being a chief data scientist, who knows? The vice president of something. Well, no, and when I worked at HP, it was amazing how many Three letter this is they had on everything, you know. I mean, uh, senior VP of something. Uh, or, I, I mean, I couldn't, you needed an org chart to navigate who you had to go and get a conversation with to affect something. And, and then you had to use the right um, acronyms to, to, to kind of talk the language and stuff. So, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but I mean, that, that steward, that person who's helping the board use its information and balance out its decision making is, is missing. Yeah, I think so. So within these roles, kind of as a data architect, what do you remember kind of like your first exposure or like conversation around data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it? Like, was there a point where you thought like, ah, this could be something? Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I saw when I was at Late Rooms, we were seeing the emergence of Airbnb and it was obvious that they'd keyed into something that they, you know that they were literally everything was about how they were building platforms to leverage their information and how that was helping them shape their product because it was really early days back then and i joined hp and i joined hp to do a 
a, a project that turned out needing a completely different solution. So um, a couple, uh, I joined with a colleague and we joined that and it was clear that how they wanted to centralize information wasn't really the optimized solution. So we ended up spending a couple of months coming up with an alternative approach, which didn't really require my skills that much. So all of a sudden I was left with not that much to do on the project. So I started to work with other parts of HP um, and I started to work with data scientists and HP owned autonomy at that time. I managed to get involved in an autonomy project as a, as a kind of advisor. So at that point, it felt like I'd finally started to do some kind of data science and artificial intelligence kind of related work. And it was pretty much without much experience. It was all very much self-taught to this point, but it was being brought in with kind of the general practices that I had around, you know, the standard data warehousing techniques and stuff that I had. It was really good, and that's where I bit the. That's where the, I really got into it, and kind of the bug completely bit me. And I didn't really. I kind of moved away from operations at that point, and moved pretty much squarely over to analytics. and And at HP, I was part of um, enterprise security services, so we were doing threat detection, and um, we were monitoring streams of like alerts coming in from like the U S Navy was one of our customers and stuff like that. So we, we got to do some really cool kind of event stream stuff back then, but it, it wasn't my project. My project was, was kind of, it was a year away because I'd, we'd, we'd taken a, a different route to get to it. So, but that was, that was literally when I got, I was bought into it, worked with some smart people. Nice. Yeah. No, that, and HP is probably one of those companies that were ahead of the game with a lot of like analytics work. Well, you couldn't really get that exposure in a lot of other places. And then fast forward a few years and you are working for a startup in Manchester, Spare Room, was Manchester and London, as a data architect. I've put here slash like head of data because you were you were heading up the data for that company. Yeah, right? that was that was my title that I we never really changed it. I joined Spare Rooms to reconnect with Andy Lowell, who is just you know, when you've got people who are just amazing mentors. Andy's up there and you know he convinced me to to kind of join spare room who and the project at spare room was we were really successful where we were successful but it was nowhere as you know we, we could there was no reason we couldn't take the model to berlin or dublin and, and places like that so the um the mission was really exciting and there was so much there was so much opportunity to help the business achieve its scaling with artificial intelligence. That's the thing that was really obvious from day one. It was like Sparing was built on the effort that it puts into looking after its users, you know, so the curation of the content and stuff is really is a massive part of it. And um and the people who did it manually at Sparing were amazing people. And uh, I know this because one, we managed to hire one of them into my team from the from the team that were doing the curation. And they were so passionate and it was like, there's so much with AI we can do to help your jobs easier so that you just deal with the complex cases, stuff like that. And we, we just saw opportunities like that and we got involved with Google, you know, GCP. Uh, we're, we're really trying to get into businesses at that point and we worked with them on some really cool kind of threat detection and moderation automation stuff. And again, it was like, it was a great, it was, we got some early wins and then we got to scale the team, which is obviously how I got to know you because it was like, okay, it's good that you're hands-on, but you've got to be in more meetings, but work's still going to happen. Things have got to still, still got to run. There's only so much you can do. You know, we've got to go and find some people to grow this team. But obviously we managed to recruit internally, which is always the first place to go to, I think, in my mind, if you can... If you can give someone an internally within your business an opportunity to move up or move across, then you should. But then obviously after that, you've got to start looking at what the market looks like. And um, I think on that on that job, I did more interviewing of um, recruitment companies than I did of candidates, which very much felt like it was the right way to do that. Um, it was a role that we didn't really – it was kind of emerging, wasn't it, data engineer at that point in time. There weren't many positions in Manchester that were, that were asking for a data engineer. Uh, everything was data science-led. 
And I'd already made that mistake in other businesses. I'd hired data scientists before they had any data or any tooling to help them do their job. Um, so yeah. we, were de- we were determined to build the engineering out. We had a very good conversation, and I think you were the ninth person I'd spoke to who we were looking for help with. You never told me that at the time. Well, you know, I do my research. It's, um, I, this is the the thing about being analytical is you analyze everything, <laughs> including your recruitment partner. So, yeah, so we, you know, we had a great chat and obviously your links to Mankamel and knowing the, knowing the community that we were operating in and, and kind of where it was with regards to its maturity was really valuable. And you helped me craft the job. Uh, description because I think the first one was shocking so you know that it it was quite obvious that it was right to go external because we had our own recruitment team at Sparium and and they were ace but this was so left field that ultimately I mean as a hiring manager I struggled to know what we needed to ask for so there was no chance that our HR team were going to be able to kind of nail that one so we had a great conversation we shaped something and I've got to say, I could have hired probably any of the candidates that we actually got to to interview. In fact, the the chap who narrowly uh, missed out, I'm still in touch with him, still keeping contact with him. It's, uh, we meet up, at, we, or we did used to meet up regularly at, at various things when they happened um, before the pandemic. And and we hired Jen, and you know, Jen, she's turned into being an amazing friend. She's a brilliant advocate, you know. A, I I think I got just as much out of working with Jen as hopefully she did working with me, which she's always very complimentary about. And it, it set me up, up on a different course. You know, I think the model that we had at Spare Room is a model that I've moved forward, really. You know, there's no finished... I think the thing that we were very honest about when we were hiring there was there's no finished articles out there for this kind of stuff. You need to... You need to find talented people who can keep learning something new every 12 months because no doubt there's something new to learn every 12 months. And um, I think that's what we did. And that's what we've continued to do at Street Group. I think that's it's been hopefully one of the – this is where experience is really helpful, isn't it? You know, you, you bring that experience of, yeah, I've done this a couple of times now into a business and this is definitely the right way to do it. And we have been recruiting internally or hiring data engineers and that's been the model at street group you know because that's really what we're going to build out we are doing data science but we're doing the we're probably doing the easier low-hanging fruit data science stuff right now that that we know in 12 months time will have grown into needing a you know a more mature more experienced data scientist or data scientists to keep up with demand um because our products are our products are really about optimizing things for our customers. They're not, it's not about showing you a load of artificial intelligence. In fact, if you don't notice the artificial intelligence, we know that it's working because ultimately it's optimized your experience. You know, you've spent less time doing things that you don't want to do or things of, you know, opportunities are being presented to you that you, you know, you, you're almost unaware of, you know, it's that whole shopping experience, but, either your operations or your, or your marketing. So, Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I mean, there's loads to unpick there, but um, what I was going to say is you had a pretty small team. So like there was only a few of you there, but you managed to achieve loads. And that's kind of the model that you've, like you said, you've kind of went with the street group, Like you've not done that classic startup thing where like they get a bit of money or the head of data goes in and persuades the founders like, oh, I need 10 data scientists and four data engineers yesterday it's kind of like no let's kind of consolidate a little bit and like you said get the tooling right and then we can worry about that stuff well i think when i joined we had to prove that what we planned to do was doable because obviously if we're talking about properties in the uk there's quite a lot of properties in the uk and there's quite a lot of information surrounding them and that you know half of the convenience for customers and also that you know their customers our customers customers is information is important to help them with their decision making um it's important to help them talk to the right people you know it's it's the, all the obvious stuff that, that goes on in marketing that that you need it's all the obvious stuff that you need to go in um supporting somebody through a house sale you know there's a lot of information involved 
Now, is it big data or isn't it? It's really, this is a really, and thankfully this is not something people ask you so much nowadays, but there's certainly a lot of complexity involved in it and it moves around. It doesn't really stay put, you know, you we're updating stuff constantly. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of compute cycles and effort going into curating this picture. So going back a tiny little bit, what, so yeah, you're head of data street group. So, um, just for anyone that doesn't know what street group are all about and the problem you guys are trying to solve, uh, what is the, what is the grand plan? So the grand plan is to completely affect the house buying process, you know, and affect it in a good way. And this, you can't, you can't make it worse. No, well, <laughs> don't say that. I'm sure, I'm sure that's possible. Um, this this actually leads back to the story of how I got introduced to Street Group in the first place. And uh, a friend of mine who I used to work with was working with Street Group, and I can't remember if it was Heather or Tom reached out to him to get a second opinion on something, just as like a consultancy type gig. Um, so I met Heather to offer this second opinion. You know, she wanted to run something by me. I was doing it as a friend, as a mate's kind of favor so that he would get in with street group because i think he was trying to sell him a service at the time it was a good start because we met for gin tonics which is epic i, I love gin tonics so does heather and we just got chatting and eventually i think we somewhere through, some way through the conversation we talked about you know what the house what our experience of house buying was like and i'd bought a house maybe a year before that and it was horrendous it was the thing was empty how much I'm in it now. So I expected it to go through really quickly and it must've taken seven or eight months to get over the line. And it was mainly, it was all about the disconnect between people and people not taking responsibility for stuff and the vendor trying to kind of get away with stuff that they shouldn't have done. And it was just really unpleasant. I, I was, it was stressful. I was chasing people. I'm sure it caused issues with me and the wife because you know, literally, it was the th- single thing we talked about, and it was not most of it wasn't positive conversation. So, I'm explaining this to Heather, and she asked me who the agent is, and I'm like, as it's coming out of my mouth, I can see a car crash emerging. It's like, you know, Briscoe, Nutter, and staff. And as I say staff, I'm, I realise I'm meeting with Heather staff, and uh, <laughs> at that moment, my, I just go into panic. And um, she bursts into laughter because that's her. That was her dad's. Um, what well, is a dad's agency? And I just spent time explaining to her detail how unsatisfied I was with the whole experience, which basically allowed her to open up her plans with what what her and Tom were doing with with Street Group, with regards to completely transforming this experience, joining everything up. Um, I learned a lot about how hard it is to be an estate agent in the market in the UK. There's not a lot of margin in it. People expect a lot, including me. And it's very difficult to balance all this. And, you know, there's there's various commercial um, kind of pressures uh, with regards to how portals and listings work and all this kind of stuff. So by the end of that experience, I've, I ended up walking away feeling quite bad that I'd I'd been, I felt so negatively about the industry, but I also said to, to Heather and Tom that, you know, if there's ever an opportunity to come on board, this is, this is one of those opportunities that, you know, it, it looks like it's really going to work and it's really going to disrupt a market um, or an industry. And, you, and it, I've always wanted to be completely attached to that at the right time, you know, so that I could be part of that journey and see quite a small business grow to be something which is on everybody's, you know, on everybody's lips is, you know, if our app is on everybody's phone who's currently moving house or, you know, a good chunk of that, then that's going to be a, a kind of a measure of success. If we've connected a load of people, if, if people are picking agencies because they use our service and it's part of the package that comes with their agency, that would be amazing. That's the kind of thing that we're aiming for. Um, because ultimately the, the, the platform that we, we were just about to release it, the operations around an estate agent are really quite complex and you know we're, we're we've worked on software for three years now to transform this experience and you know something's good when 
everybody who sees it is like, wow, that's amazing. How have you done that? You know, fighting to sign up onto it. And, you know, that's where we're at with this product. There's that much industry buzz and excitement around it. And, um, but, you know, the thing is, another product that Tom and Heather did build like four or five years ago um, has been paying for all of this. You know, literally our, our, our marketing tool has been the bread and butter of the company for for the last four or five years and has allowed us to build the new product um, under our own steam, you know. So w- there's two really strong products at completely different completely different stages in their life cycle, you know. Our marketing product is copied by everybody in the industry, is has a load of misinformation pushed out about it. You know, it's always flattering when people are like, saying that it doesn't do what it does or that theirs does something better and it doesn't um or is copied you know we release a feature and then literally two months later that features in one of our competitors you know we're we're at that mature level where we're probably the industry leader and everybody wants to knock us off our throne with the marketing side of things so it's really good it's really diverse it means that you've got lots of challenges on both sides something that's new and shiny something that is a Rolls Royce of the industry that you've got to respect and look after. And because it's marketing based, there's obviously quite a lot of data coming through that. And like you said, if you can get a fraction of the houses in the UK on your app, then again, data is going to be pretty integral. So like, are you going to be looking at stuff like, I don't know, like price optimization, like, don't know, like, uh, or even just trends. Like we had a chat last week, right. About impact of like COVID on house prices and, it's not really had an impact, right? So this is an interesting one. If we, this is where the team size needs to get over a certain, over a tipping point where we've got more time to actually analyze our data and put it out into the community. I know that Shana, head of marketing, would love us to become thought leaders because we had it at Spare Room, interestingly enough. Our, our rental index was used by which um, the government came to us to talk about, you know, rental initiatives and, and landlord stuff. And it would be great to get to that with Street Group where we are, you know, we don't just have great products, but we're actually considered to be the people who are helping people make decisions that are quite complex about where they want to live or, or you know, which market they want to enter and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, data, I mean, data powers the whole thing, really. It's, it powers all the marketing opportunity stuff. It's all part of the optimization experience in our operational side of things. So ultimately, the opportunities are, are everywhere. So the, the data team is going to continue to grow and grow and grow. I don't think our challenges will be, can we grow it quick enough? Can we keep ahead of, of that point where, you know, we're not ridiculously expensive and, and kind of not delivering value, but we're not too far behind that we're missing opportunities? It's very tricky sweet spot to hit with regards to how big you make things um, and how quick you do it and also the team culture the the one thing I can say about street group is the culture of the businesses is probably what is driving it forward Um, Heather and Tom set a very very strong ethos and a very high bar with regards to who joins the company um, how the company operates and how people work together, you know. So it, it's interesting times is all I can say. It's like I don't because we're dynamic and we are we do we have an established product. We also have a startup product. We can change quarter to quarter. We don't plan too far ahead because it, it, it would probably be pointless. You know, we, we would have pivoted by by the end of twelve months, for instance, a couple of times because we really are reacting to market feedback and market opportunity. What's really interesting is the industry isn't very mature when it comes to white papering and pushing out analysis, which can be peer-reviewed, for instance, because there's loads of, I mean, even estate agents do it themselves. You know, when you talk to estate agents about the recession back in 2008, um, they all say that prices dropped and ultimately, ultimately, when you look at the numbers, they didn't really drop. They just didn't grow. They kind of stank, they plateaued. Um, and the thing that dropped was volume. 
transaction volume. So basically less houses sold. That was the dramatic change. But what's burnt into people's minds is that there was a price crash. And it's not. There was just a, basically a stagnation in the market. And then it recovered right back to the same trajectory about 18 months, two years later. And it's that kind of, I think there's lots of those kinds of insights that could certainly help the help the industry. But but obviously, we you know, they're nice to have. It would be nice to get to a thought leader position. We've got a lot of product optimization to do as our primary concern. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, and I think we're already seeing that. I mean, up in Edinburgh, like the house, there was a, obviously a huge stagnation in March to, I don't know, July. And then since then, it's, seems like it was worse than it was before like houses are more expensive more competitive like it's just crazy so yeah i think if you look at the number apart numbers like you said it probably tells a different story to what people remember the, um, the back pressure that was created by covid was you know it was immense really there were so many and this is the thing the message that we tried to get out to estate agents you know because everybody was worried about cash flow instantly and there isn't a lot because the margins are so tight and they're getting squeezed. It was like be in a position to recover because it will recover. You know, you can see that there's a back pressure building. It, it will come, and now the industry is in a massive boom. And you know, you can't you can't get on properties quick enough, which is it's great for estate agents because they want to push volume through their books. So, yeah, no, it makes sense. So when we met, obviously you were growing the spare room team. Uh, you have just been and are continuing to grow the street group team. Um, and that company is just growing rapidly anyway. So do you have anything that you've learned, kind of like you said, bringing your knowledge and experience into small companies? Like, do you have any, like, I don't know, key learnings or like non-negotiables now when you're building kind of really good data teams? I think with data teams, it's, you've got to keep your mind open and you've got to really concentrate on the person that you're bringing into the team. So I think starting with a good team ethos and a good, you know, a very collaborative team is, is the bedrock to this. You know, you've got to bring people in who probably need a bit of support, but are coming into a supportive environment. Uh, it's interesting that we talked, we touched earlier on having how many streams you end up kind of developing as a, as you get further on in your career line management is definitely one of them but i i definitely prefer mentoring element of that rather than the the managing someone managing feels very old-fashioned to me hiring i mean this, this goes back to andy lol hiring people who are smarter than you who are eventually going to get to a place where hopefully they're better at something than you are um, and then just making sure that you can support them through that journey because it does require a lot of support you know you can't you can't bring people in who can do 60 percent of the job and not concentrate on filling that 40 percent out and making time to do that and having budget in it and also having understanding from you know the leadership team in the business you know it's like these people are being developed you know in two years time they'll be the they'll be exactly what we want um, and it'll be our job to make sure that they want to stay and, and, and love the business at that point. But up until then, we do have to invest in in them as, as as developing people. So, you know, that's probably been that's probably been the most effective model, and I, I think it pays back better. You know, rather than going straight in for top of the market premium people who who are who are literally at the top of the game. You know, they could pick to go anywhere. It's like it's nice to bring people in and invest in them because I think that loyalty gets paid back if you if you've set yourself up and you've brought the right candidates in and, and you know that feels like it's growth and they get used to everybody gets used to helping one another because if you know if you've developed them you've put time into them that will pay off into their relationships with other people in the team and actually their relationships with their stakeholders and people outside of the team as well. So, you know, as a, as an approach, that's generally my first, you know, my primary kind of focus. Um, because ultimately how well defined is a data scientist anyway, as a job description or a data engineer, they're, they're just not well defined because it's so varied. It's an emerging industry really. And especially in the northwest of England, you know, 
we're behind London, we're behind the States on this kind of stuff. It's, you know, there's not many tailor-made people out there. Thanks. Uh, I hope anyone that ever hires anyone listens to that last couple of minutes because uh, I couldn't agree more. But um, also just thinking back, and I hadn't really thought about this, but like if you looked at your team when you just hired Jen, you had someone from a completely different part of the business that you brought over to help you and train up and make into like a data analyst. Um, and then you hired Jen who had no commercial experience, just coming straight from a PhD and doing some of her own kind of like side projects, but was obviously very smart. And arguably now she's the best data engineer in Manchester. And the other person in your team has went on and done really interesting stuff as well. And then your team that you're building just now, I know is of a kind of similar ilk. So it does work, but it just takes a little bit of time from that mentorship side. And what we hear quite a lot from kind of our clients and business is like, oh, we still have time. Like we need someone to come and hit the ground running. It's impossible anyway. Like you can't hit the ground running in a new business. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't scale. And, you know, ultimately I go in and hit the ground running and then get contended. And it's usually that's the time that things have to grow. And ultimately it's a, it's a, it's a bit late if I'm completely honest, we, you know, we probably need to be six months ahead of that um, so that the contention stuff doesn't force you into growing a team. It's, it's strategy is tough though, isn't it? Especially in something as new as this. I mean, how many data scientists do you, do you need next year? You know, how much, how many data insights are they going to un, you know, uncover? How many of them are going to be useful? There's very, it's very difficult to predict any of this kind of stuff. And all, ultimately true. you, I mean, in some, I think in some some areas, you can probably bring in people with some experience and then hire above, uh, you know, and yeah. then bring and then push good practice in. I think it's difficult to do that in data because ultimately you've got to set you've got to set all the themes out. You've got to set the culture in place. You've got to there's threads that that take quite a while to deliver, and if you don't set them out correctly at the beginning you're just going to end up resetting it continually as you manage to notch yourself along with the capability and that capability being what your team is capable of versus what your business needs. So it's really difficult. I mean, ultimately that's probably why I'm still hands-on. I come in, I deliver something that demonstrates that there's a need for this. You know, it's that kind of, you know, here's some secret sauce, buy into, I know it's a crack and that's a terrible way of explaining things, but you know, it's that whole kind of show people what they're missing, show people, you know, open the door a little bit, crack the door open and then start building towards a stronger capability uh, further down the line. And it is slightly different to just scaling other parts of the business. So, you know, go big initially and then, then make sure that they can, move it forward because it worked i mean jen's an amazing example isn't it it's like taking people from education or from an educational background is always interesting because they're so different to commercial backgrounds and jen's a brilliant example she's so smart and rosie was another example these were really bright people so i knew that if they could if they were given the opportunity to learn stuff they'd learn it they'd smash it um and they both did uh, rosie taught herself well I, I taught a little bit but she learned sql in a month and then she became the sql ninja of the business you know jen look at jen's experience in gcp in data engineering in the northwest she's probably she's probably leading it and ultimately people just need support i think that's the the thing if they're bright and they're driven and interviewing people to uncover that is a bit of a skill, I guess. But you know, that's the, that's the investment thing, um, and then and then pay into it, and it will pay back. And just talking about it, this is a whole other topic. I don't know how much we'll get into it or how much we can glean from it right now. But the kind of issue of like diversity in technology isn't going away anytime soon, just because it seems like. Nobody really has answers and there's still people making pretty basic mistakes. But ever since I've worked with you, your team has been, I would say, like at least a decent split of various backgrounds. 
did that just come naturally that when you're interviewing people just the way that you do it like you're looking to give people a shot on their attitude aptitude like rather than trying to just have a cookie cutter tick every single box like does that just lend itself do you think it's a really good question i know there have been things that have kind of influenced my viewpoint of this because it's really strange when people ask me about this i don't know how it's happened it's accidental they've been the best candidates for the job if i've managed to do anything it's been to look at it really objectively and put, extract the, the fact that there are male or female from the decision making and um, maybe my approach to being analytical helps with this um, i had a very i grew up with a very strong irish mother so you know i don't have any there's no bias there with regards to what women can't or can or can't do you know, I've had I've had friends from all kinds of backgrounds, and I think it's become easier for me because, as I've experienced having friendships or or mentoring or or line managing people, I've listened to what they've said with regards to what they're experiencing, and taken note of it, and then kind of made an, a commitment to not reproduce that myself so that that person never experiences what they're explaining to me or, or, or how they felt about something. Because ultimately, most of the time, even really good intention people can be very ignorant to what another person is experiencing or not. And I think that's the thing I've learned. It's like, I had a really good friend. Well, I do. I've got to stop talking past tense. Um, I have a really good friend from late rooms. He, uh, we got to we got to know each other in the data team and we went to a lot of events together and he, you know, he doesn't drink and it's, you'd be amazed at how many times the tech community has gotten together to go drinking. And he instantly felt excluded from that because he didn't really feel happy or comfortable in that environment. And it's things like that that make you wonder about, you know, to get to a place where everybody feels welcome, you've got to make compromises on what you kind of bring in and bring out. Another one is industrial language. I didn't, until I met um, Becky Taylor and I worked with her and she runs uh, Women in Technology North, I didn't realise how some of the innocent things you say can be completely, you know, exclusive to some people because they, they just, they it's interpreted a certain way now i'm not i'm not an advocate for completely neutralizing the work environment or anything like that it's impossible to remove all of this but you should be aware of some of it i think it's on everybody to be aware that something they could say could potentially have a negative effect or something they could do could be seen negatively and and to try and be aware of it and that's really the only thing that I do is like if there's any bias creeping in or if there's anything which is going to exclude people, um, just try and work on that and work it out of your day to day. And then the rest of it should take care of itself. Really? Yeah. You know, if someone, if you write a good job description and there are people out there of various different, you know, uh, groups, if they can all engage with it, then you've got a really good job description. If they can all interview for it, then you've you've got a really good process. If you consider everybody equally with regards to what is actually involved in the job, then you've got a really fair process, and then hopefully you'll you know you'll be able to have a nice diverse working environment. But you know, as a statistician in me, you've got to also be aware of what the distribution is in the pool out there that you reach. You know that you're kind of working with. You can't manufacture people fitting certain you know criteria in a space if it doesn't already include you know doesn't already include it so you know i think there's there's a lot of people beating themselves up about whether they're doing this right or wrong and probably focusing on some of the wrong things yeah so all of it is just like the education i mean since we've started organizing man kml i went from Eric and I just trying to find four people that be willing to stand up and speak in a room and getting a few beers in and a few pizzas to really having our eyes opened by a few people in the community saying, like, you really need to do this, this, and this much, much better. 
in order to be much more inclusive. So it's, we're still learning 100%, but it has been really interesting. Well, and I, I just want to add, I've been horrified by some of the things I've heard from people. So there are some people who are behaving very badly out there, and they really need to – more needs to be done to stop those people from getting away with what, what they are saying to people or how they're making them feel and stuff. But, I mean, crikey, is where do you start? apart from setting a very good bar and a very good example yeah i think the example thing is the the best and then if everyone makes the kind of small changes then like you said the rest should take care of it i think that about does it excited that we finally got it done uh it feels like it's been a long time in the making but then came together very quickly which is nice. <laughs> it's amazing what a bit of pressure from you know your, your head of uh, talent can do to get something done it, it, yeah, shows a lot of for making this. It happen. is rude. I mean, because we, I've been talking to you for ages now. We should have done this ages ago, really. I apologise, Liam. Uh, I, no, it's fine. It's a good time with the with the product launch. It's almost written in the stars, so uh, that, I wouldn't worry it. about it. It's like it was uh, done on purpose. It was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, nothing after on the show was on purpose. But no, it's really exciting to see where uh, you and the data team at Street and just Street. Uh, street group get i mean the product's launching so we will tag it up and the company up and anyone else that's interested and people can go and check it out and we'll see see how it all goes maybe we can get you back on in a couple of years when you've taken over the entire real estate industry in the 18 UK. months time would be a very interesting 18, we'll, we'll, we'll book it in in 18 months and no matter what happens we'll have to just have a warts and all podcast and see what happens agreed uh, well thank you very much for coming on i really appreciate it you're welcome